This is an RNZ podcast. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and with over 600,000 podcasts out there today, there's so much to listen to, but so little time. So each week I stick on the headphones, listen to hours of audio from all over the world and share the best of what I hear with you. Coming up today, Science Versus cuts through the trends, the fads and the opinions to get to the real science behind everything from vaccinations to fasting diets. You actually went and measured the mercury in people's toenails to make sure that they were reporting their tuna consumption correctly? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I'll also speak to Science Versus Australian host Wendy Zuckerman about how she got headhunted to go and make the show in New York. Then, why did the tech industry get so blokey? I guess I'm still surprised that there are research groups and companies building game characters and virtual assistant characters with bodies that have tits hanging out of their blouses. So what are the consequences of having a male-dominated tech sector? And how are people trying to change things? And finally, homeless in Googleville. The intersection camps out on a street corner in Silicon Valley to meet the tech workers living in camper vans. The last Google employee who talked to a journalist about his living in a van on work was kicked out and forced to move and you know the same thing could happen to me well the good news is you haven't given me your name yet (laughs) and if you've got a favorite show you'd like me to share then please let me know about it pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address and on twitter we're at rnz podcast hour (laughs) one week a glass of red wine is supposed to be good for you the next week you read that alcohol's giving you cancer We're saturated in science news, from gene editing to promising new treatments. These kinds of stories have become killer content. But with the rise of fake news, celebrities spouting pseudoscience and fewer specialist science reporters, there's a lot of noise and a risk that things are getting misreported or misunderstood. Getting a proper picture of the current scientific consensus about something, on what the scientists agree on and what they still don't know, is the driving force behind Science Versus. The host, Wendy Zuckerman, was making the show for the ABC in Australia when someone from the big podcasting studio Gimlet heard it and whisked her and producer Caitlin Sorry off to make the show in New York. And when you listen to Science Versus, it's not hard to see why. Wendy is super enthusiastic, she sounds chatty and natural, and she loves a good pun. Also a bad one too. The show gets you to the point of what we know and what we don't, quickly and clearly, explaining any curly scientific issues along the way. And each episode also comes with a transcript and citations of all the studies they've used, so you can check them out and read things for yourself. And it doesn't shy away from some big and potentially controversial subjects. Organic food, vaccinations, antidepressant use, veganism and alcohol. I'll speak to Wendy Zuckerman about how the show's made and how the whole Gimlet thing happened in just a minute. First, though, here's some of a Science Versus episode looking at intermittent fasting and those popular diets like the 5-2 and the 16-8. 
Today, we are chewing up the research into fasting diets. We've just found out that fasting can help you lose weight. And now we're going to tackle some of the bigger claims about this diet. Starting with whether fasting can actually make us live a longer, healthier life. Because the internet bros and goopfluencers say that one of the benefits of fasting is that it can slow down the ageing process. People that fast a lot end up looking a lot younger than they actually are. To enhance regeneration, decrease inflammation. This is great for dementia, improving your memory, focus, concentration. And they say that this is possible thanks to this very sciencey sounding idea. Something known as autophagy. Autophagy, autophagy, autophagy. We're going to talk about autophagy. What is autophagy? So this sciencey sounding word, it's derived from ancient Greek. And to find out how to properly pronounce it, we track down five people who speak ancient Greek. That's right, there are bigger nerds than us out there. Now, they all told us slightly different things, but it tended to be something like autophagy. So that's what we'll go with. Okay, so now we kind of know how to pronounce it. What is it? Autophagy is a process that works inside your cells, and it helps your cells replace damaged parts. And by the way, how it does this is really cool. The cell literally eats chunks of itself. In fact, that's what autophagy means in ancient Greek, self-eating. It's like the little cannibal inside us all. And the key here is that the cells can then recycle those old dud pieces to make shiny new parts. Here's researcher Krista Varity again. It's kind of a, a weird term. The body starts cleaning itself up, kind of like gobbles, gobbles itself up. The story you'll hear online is that fasting ramps up autophagy, which then means you'll be getting rid of more bung cell parts, creating more new parts, and just generally keeping us healthy, whether that means fighting off Alzheimer's or making us live longer. Now, the big problem with these claims is that basically all of the research that these brohards are quoting comes from studies that aren't in people. First and foremost, there, there's never been anything showing like in humans that either calorie restriction or fasting helps people live longer. You know, those are all studies done in like worms and yeast and mice and that we're just kind of extrapolating from. Basically, when it comes to this question of whether fasting boosts autophagy in you and me, humans that is, all we have are a handful of studies that are actually really conflicting. So some seem to show that fasting boosts autophagy and others don't. One researcher told me that part of the reason for this is that scientists don't even have a clear way to measure changes in autophagy in people. Which is all to say that the cupboard of evidence is really quite bare. And that's why you won't catch Krista lazing about on a Sunday afternoon watching these YouTube videos. Autophagy, autophagy, autophagy. It actually just drives me nuts. I don't even watch those videos, honestly. I don't read anything about intermittent fasting online because it just I just get, like, really irritated. Conclusion. When it comes to the evidence that fasting will make you live longer, well, if you're a worm or a mouse, we've got some great news for you. Also, how are you listening to this podcast? For humans, the research just isn't there. The proof is in the pudding, which for now, I'm eating. But there is an area of fasting research that's racing ahead. 
and it's in cancer. Fasting may actually weaken tumors. Researchers are looking into the benefits of starving cancer. Now, we know the idea that any diet could kill cancer, it sounds nuts. But there's actually good science as to why this might work. You see, many types of cancer love sugar. They just, like, eat it up. And this has been known for ages. But more recently, scientists have wondered, well, if cancer loves sugar so much, and when you fast, your body kind of runs out of sugar... Couldn't this cut off cancer's food supply? Volta Longo is a professor in ageing at the University of Southern California, and he told us what it might be like for the cancer cell when someone is fasting. The cancer cells, for the first time, it finds itself in a very strange environment that it's never seen before. The idea is that once the cancer is confused and weakened by fasting, if you then add traditional medicine, like chemotherapy, it's like a one-two punch. So the fasting and the chemo... ...is able to uh, search and destroy every uh, cancer cell, call it death by confusion. And, And the reason that I call it that is because it's really about the cancer cells... Uh, being able to adapt to this very confusing environment where everything is changed. So to test this, Volta gave a bunch of mice cancer in a kind of creepy way. The cancer cells are injected into the mouse, the mass starts growing, and uh, eventually, uh, if you don't do anything, that, that will kill the mouse. To save the little mousies, Volta put them on a fast as well as giving them chemo. And it worked. A lot of the mice survived. And other scientists doing similar work found this too. Using that one-two punch, cancers in mice were shrinking. We cured lots of mice when we combined the two. So it's really interesting how the combination can be so much more powerful than each intervention alone. Scientists are now researching whether fasting can help fight cancer in people. And already we have some exciting results. In a study of more than 2,000 women who had breast cancer, those who restricted the time they were eating, which meant they were fasting for more than 13 hours each day, they were less likely to get breast cancer a second time. And more and more trials will be coming out, testing different kinds of fasting diets. Volta is involved in a few of them, and he's taken a sneak peek at the results. And what what are these studies finding? That I cannot tell you. Oh, can, is are they are they positive? Uh, let's say that um, I can say that they're definitely not negative. Definitely not negative. That's all I can say. I'm. Uh, very uh, excited. Uh, yeah, Let's say that everything I've seen is, is really, really impressive. Volta expects the results of these trials to be out in the next few years. And while Volta is excited, he's not getting carried away. There have been lots of promising cancer treatments in the past. And yet, we still don't have a cure. It's a humbling experience. And so there is a lot of uncertainties. It's going to be interesting to, um, to see what happens here. Yeah. One of the uncertainties with cancer patients is that some fasting diets might cause other problems, like people might lose too much weight and become malnourished. And away from cancer, this got us thinking, are there other side effects to these fasting diets? Like, other than losing the joy of eating? Well, 
some people do report feeling constipated, dizzy or weak. And then there's one thing that you might not expect. Gallstone formation and the need for a gallbladder removal goes up. Oh, wow. Gallstones are lumps in the gallbladder and they can be really painful. So that's just an example of how you cannot think that everything is always going to go the way you want it to go. And it's these kind of surprising side effects that are why people should be cautious when they're diving into these fasting diets, particularly some of the more extreme versions. So when it comes to fasting, does it stack up like pancakes with maple syrup? One, will you lose weight? Yes, people on fasting diets tend to lose weight. And that's probably because they're eating less. It's not magic. Two, will fasting make you live longer? Well, there's some exciting worm research, even mouse research, but no good evidence for this in humans. And three, can fasting fight cancer? Well, the most promising research is in fasting combined with chemotherapy. And things are looking good for now, but we need more published work. We'll know more in the next few years. So, what are we to make of these fasting diets? Is this a wonder diet or a wonder why your friends are on it diet? Well, it's a little bit of both. There is some interesting work happening here. But the brohards and the health fluences, they're getting a bit carried away. For me, I'm not seeing enough research to change my diet. But Katie, hello. You're still on the diet. Yeah, I am. Are you going to stick with it? Yeah, I am. Really? Yeah. You I, don't have to. We're almost finished the episode. I know, but I like it. Really? I know. I know. I think I like it because I'm pretty snacky. Like, <laughs> my mum would probably call me a bottomless pit. <laughs> Thanks, mum. Thanks, mum. So having boundaries around when I can and can't eat, I think, is helpful. Caitlin Sorey speaking to Wendy Zuckerman on the Science Versus episode called Fasting Diets, What's the Skinny? from Gimlet Media. And I asked Wendy how she came up with the idea for the show. The show came about because I'd been a science journalist for quite a while, started my career at New Scientist magazine and then moved to the ABC. And my senior producer, Caitlin Sorey, who was just heading up the podcast division at ABC, and she had seen me reporting science, knew that I, like, was excited and, and loved science and just asked me if I had any podcast ideas. And it, it just happened that that week in science there was some very big news, which was that Gwyneth Paltrow had suggested that women steam clean their vaginas. Do you remember this moment? I do. This is, I do. I mean, she's had a fair few theories over the years, but I do remember a vaginal steaming story. That's, I mean, it was. it's a bit like, you know, where were you when Princess Di, you know, died? It's a where were you when you heard about Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, steam cleaning vagina? But I remember where I was because it was became a very a very pivotal moment in my life because I just immediately thought, oh, well, what about science versus Gwyneth Paltrow? And the idea was that we would use sort of science and humour and joy to explore things that people care about from the seemingly silly. You, you actually went and measured the mercury in people's toenails to make sure that they were reporting their tuna consumption correctly? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to the very serious. And I 
had coffee with Caitlin and I pitched her the idea. She immediately got it. She loved it. I did a pilot and it just kind of ballooned from there. And, and then I ended up like taking Caitlin to New York with me when, um, when Gimlet picked up the podcast. How did that all happen, though? Because remarkably quickly, really, you know, I think you'd only done about nine episodes of Science Versus, which, which I think was the first season. At some point very early on, someone at Gimlet heard the show and was like, wait a minute, she's great, we want her. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, that was basically how it happened to my huge surprise. So I remember waking up on a Saturday morning, I think... This is sort of one story of how it happened. And I saw that my Twitter was kind of blowing up in this way because the show had been doing really well in Australia beyond my wildest dreams. But then my my Twitter feed was kind of going crazy and I tracked it back to the host of 99% Invisible, Roman Mars, had happened to send a tweet out. Like, I didn't know Roman Mars. He's just like a podcast god. And he had happened to send this tweet out that was just like... I think you guys will love this podcast. It's called Science Versus. You know, sounds really great. You should listen. And after that tweet, that single tweet from Roman, then Science Versus started charting in the United States, which was unbelievable. So it kind of rocketed up the US charts. And when it was there, someone at Gimlet, a development producer, happened to, to hear it. And then he told Alex Bloomberg and Caitlin Kenny and the, the other lords of Gimlet, like, hey, you guys should listen to this. It's really great. And then they just kind of said, should we acquire it? And the story that I've heard from over here was that everyone was like, we do that. We can do that. Um, so, so it was the early days of Gimlet too, and they were like, "I think we can do that." So it was just, uh, just a lot of you know, very sort of startup culture of yeah, let's give it a go. And so, but but from my end, I just got an email from from this company that I'd actually never heard of at the time, just saying we like your your podcast. Can we have a chat? Um, and then this all happened sort of towards the end of season one. And then um, it moved very quickly because I was supposed to be starting season two at the ABC and then got this sort of call from New York and basically told Gimlet, like, well, if you're... Because I didn't believe this could possibly be serious. I mean, it sounds like some, you know, Nigerian prince story. Like, yeah, come to New York and... Give us we'll, your bank we'll details. Like, exactly. And, we'll, you know, we'll pay you to make a podcast. Podcast, you know, it sounded absurd. So I was just sort of told them, if you're really serious, we need to move quickly. And they did move quickly. So here I am, you know, three three years later. Here at Science Versus, there's no question too confusing, no research quagmire too sticky. Strap on your beer goggles and get yourself ready for a peer-reviewed adventure to find out once and for all, is alcohol good for us or not? Because I thought it was interesting, you kept the IP for Science Versus, so ABC didn't acquire that, so you were free to kind of go off to Gimlet. That was, was that foresight on your part? Were you thinking, oh, this, this could be really big, or was that just luck, or how did that happen? It was absolute luck. I mean, it was a little bit of a foresight. I mean, even foresight is giving myself a little much. Um, <laughs> the real ins and outs of it is that I had thought maybe I might want to turn this into some kind of TV show in the future. And so I happened to send off an email 
to the bosses at the time, you know, higher up than Caitlin and just sort of said, you know, can I keep the rights if, if this is to turn into something for television? And just got this email back. You know, at the time podcasts were, no one was thinking this could be an industry. No one was thinking this could be a bubble at the ABC. They were just like, oh, this is a fun experiment. Give give some new talent, an ex, you know, an experience, you know, see how Wendy goes. It was just, they were like, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. You keep, you keep that. And then basically there was no other contract that was signed and I wasn't a full-time employee, which meant that it fell through this beautiful crack and that casual email chain suddenly became very important to my future. So it was, you know, and and apparently now I have heard that there is a, um, because now, uh, you know, the ABC is is investing more into podcasts, takes them them seriously, and and now I've heard that there is a a contract with a Wendy Zuckerman clause to prevent this from happening again. I'm just trying to put myself in your position, though, because it must have been very exciting, but there must have been part of you that was kind of a bit scared as well, going, oh, my God, this could be huge. Yeah, I, I, 100, 100%, both both feelings. Because I had I had never studied radio. I was flying off the seat of my pants when I made the first season. I, I just, I didn't know anything about making, you know, a longer format piece. Maybe I'd gone out on the field just a few times. You know, I was, a, I was really green. And so it, it was a huge learning curve coming here. And it was it was exciting, but it was oh it it was so so stressful, particularly for those first few years where I I just didn't know what I was doing. The, you know the expectations you just put on yourself because yeah. you're in New York. It's just um, you know it's re- yeah it's a, some real. I, I remember when I first arrived here. People are giving me a wonderful, but you know, everyone's giving me sort of advice about living in New York. And two people independently told me, "Oh, people here just like to cry on the train. Don't interact with them. What? That's just what we do." <laughs> this is just so. This city can just be so overwhelming. And and both people said, "Look, I know Aussies just like to chat to everyone. Don't talk to people if they're crying on the train." And I was like, oh, my God, what is this city? What have I done? Um, <laughs> what have I done? Exactly, oh, exactly. Dear. But, you know, it's it's come out good. And how's being at Gimlet? I mean, obviously there's a lot more resources, I guess. You're going to have a lot more people working with you. How's it changed the show? It's changed the show a lot. So when I was doing season one at the ABC, it was basically me and then I had Katie Sorry. Uh, this is uh, the same Caitlin that sort of headed off and is now my senior producer. But she was at the time producing two other podcasts. So her time was completely split. Compared to now at Gimlet, I have Katie full-time. I have an editor who works on my show and another show. And then I have two reporters and an intern and a sound engineer. So it is, it's just a full, it's a, it's a team. And, the, um, you know, and our, the ability to like dive into the research to find you know, interesting characters. It's just unbelievable when you have those kinds of resources and even just the resources to go traveling. Like I've been able to travel all across the country to help report things and make the science feel more exciting. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, I, I feel, feel very lucky. Conclusion. It does look like alcohol can protect us against heart disease, which is the biggest killer in the United States. But it's not the lifesaver that those earlier studies had found. So, bottom line, I'm taking a sip of my beer, but I'm a little less excited about it. The whole point of the show is that 
we are trying to come up with scientific consensus on issues that you care about. And we want to make it fun and exciting and accessible. But that means that to, to really make something you know, and we want to, you know, we found that about half, like people want to listen for about half an hour because it's quite dense science. It's yeah. quite, it's not hard work to listen to, but it is like, it is dense. And so half an hour is good. But that means to, to really understand and encapsulate the science in that shorter time, you need to do so much research to be able to write one sentence that's like, this is, this is the important thing yeah. you need. You mentioned that you, one of the objectives is to try and find a scientific consensus. It's it's really difficult sometimes, though, isn't it? I mean, there are all these different competing opinions, and you're having to decide how much weight you put on one over the other. And I mean, what are some of the barriers that you're encountering to to getting to that point where you can say, "Hey, this is this is the best science that we can say today." One of the hardest ones that we've had this season was with alcohol. So we were really like interrogating this idea. You know, one, one week it's good for you, next week it's bad for you. Like, what, what's going on? How how much you know can you drink? And that was one where the scientific consensus was was really tough because with most of the topics, you start reading and it feels like, oh, this is going to be tough to find where the scientific consensus is. But then you keep reading and you realize that actually most of the scientists are bubbling around exactly the same ideas and they're just fighting around the corners that most people listening aren't really that bothered by, you know? Yeah. Um, and so so for most episodes, you, you do find, you just keep reading, you keep talking to people and there is this, mo- like keep talking to scientists and there is this moment in the research where it comes together and you just start hearing the same things from every scientist and it's such a it's such a good moment because you're like, we've got it. Yeah. We've got it. You know, and you start repeating things back to scientists. You're like, so is this the thing? And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's pretty much it. With the alcohol episode, that was one where um, Meryl Horn um, was the producer on that. And she is a phenomenal, she's got a PhD, just a ph- phenomenal, like, can just like take data and, and pass it out. And she was just like tearing her hair out going like, is alcohol good for you or not? <laughs> like could not could not work it out. And so in that case, to get scientific consensus, we actually ended up reaching out to, I mean, hundreds of cardiologists and epidemiologists. And we gave them a survey that was basically like, where do you think the science is at? Like it was this like multiple choice because we knew they're all busy. We heard back from, you know, almost 50. And, and that was that was what helped us get to that scientific consensus. Wendy Zuckerman, the presenter of Science Versus. And if you go to our website at rnz.co.nz podcast hour now, you'll find a list of some of Wendy's favourite podcasts. When did the tech sector get so blokey? Back in the industry's early days, about 80% of all computer programmers were women. But then things started to change. Fast forward to today and less than 20% of those employed in the tech industry are female. People are protesting about sexism and toxic work cultures and there's a widely acknowledged lack of opportunities for women. So why has all this happened? What are some of the consequences of having so few women in the sector and what's being done to change things? Marianne Seekert tries to answer these questions in a BBC doco called A Job for the Boys. One recent American study asked girls what was putting them off studying computer science. And by far the biggest deterrent was not the maths or the science involved, but the sexism that they thought they would encounter in that world. 
by age six, girls are saying that they're less interested in programming than boys. And by age six, they already seem to have stereotypes that computer science is more of a boy's thing than a girl's thing. Sapna Cherian, Associate Professor of Psychology at Washington University, wants to see if we can increase girls' enthusiasm and change the stereotypes of computing from a very early age. The work that we've done in my lab has looked at giving kids exposure to programming with a programming game, like a little basically app that allows you to control a little robot. And when we give that programming game to girls after playing it for 20 minutes, they're um, significantly more motivated to learn programming and move forward in computer science. And she's tried experimenting with classroom design to see if this makes a difference to potential computer science students. The room was set up in one of two ways. So for half of the participants, when they walked into the room, it looked like a stereotypical computer science environment. And it had a Star Trek poster. It had a soda can pyramid, like comics, stray electronic parts, video games. And we had them sit at the table and they would fill out a questionnaire about their interest in um, pursuing computer science. For the other half of the participants, it was the same room, except we had redecorated it. So we had like art posters and nature posters. There was more like general interest books instead of video games. We had plants and water bottles, things like that. And um, what we ended up finding was that for men, they were equally interested in computer science, regardless of what the room setup was. But for women, they expressed a significantly greater interest when they were in the room that did not fit the stereotype of computer science. And what ended up happening is that the gender gap that was there in the stereotypical condition actually completely disappeared in the non-stereotypical condition so that women and men were equally interested in pursuing computer science. Carnegie Mellon is one of those universities that, as of last year, had a 50-50 class of young men and young women in computer science. Some universities, such as Harvey Mudd and Carnegie Mellon, have found that small changes can make a real difference. Justine Cassell again. We've introduced a lot more of what's called peer programming, and that is where students work in groups. We've both told them that they're not going to get a grade simply on their individual performance, that they can get grades working as a pair or as a group. But we've also built snug little spaces throughout the building that are open 24 hours a day. And that means that they're really encouraged to work in groups. And I know it works because I'm quite a night person. And from my office late at night, I hear peals of laughter from both boys and girls in front of my office door. But even if we can find ways to get more young women to want to study computer science, what will they find when they hit the world of work? Well, I'm at a tech conference in Silicon Valley. I'm surrounded by a plethora of experts, including Meredith Broussard, a data journalism professor at New York University, and she left her job as a computer scientist because of what she calls techno-chauvinism. Being challenged or being underestimated or being not believed is really frustrating. I actually still get that a lot. I still get the people challenging me. I still get people underestimating me. I get people assuming that I don't know what I'm talking about technologically because I'm a woman. Were the young men being taken seriously? They... I think get taken more seriously as technologists because there's this cult of genius and this mythology of youth inside tech. So we're half a century on from Steve Shirley, 
and not a whole lot has changed. Except the protests against sexism are now more public. I decided to coordinate this stuff in Meredith Whitaker, co-founder of the AI Now Institute and research scientist at Google, was one of the organisers of that protest last year. The Google walkout was a massive demonstration in which myself and 20,000 of my colleagues around the globe walked out of Google in protest of a workplace culture that was discriminatory, racist and inequitable. And in what sense is it a sexist atmosphere to work in? You can look at the data and you can get a sense of the systemic discrimination and misogyny that pervades the industry at large. Each one of us certainly has our stories of the kind of discomfort, discrimination, outright abuse and harassment that prevent women and people of color and minorities from entering these spaces. But even when we do get in, I think we need to emphasize that many of us leave. If you look at Google's 2018 diversity report, the attrition rates were highest for black and Latinx women. It's pretty clear that this isn't an industry or a field that is welcoming to women and marginalized groups. The people in the room matter, and right now the people in the room are, in the Western context, majority white, majority men, majority technically educated, majority rich. So what's the impact of having so few women around the tech table? Justine again. I guess I'm still surprised that there are research groups and companies building game characters and virtual assistant characters with bodies that have tits hanging out of their blouses, or that games would make weak female characters and strong male characters, or that the robot hall of fame would only have a vacuum as an example of a female robot and a robot that brings down buildings to find lost children (laughs) as an example of a male robot. There's lots of examples in our past and in our present about things that are designed by all-male teams, for example, that end up being less than ideal. Sapna Cherian. The example I like to give is the example of airbags. They ended up killing and injuring some women and children because they were designed for kind of a larger body type, a male body type. The team had all men and People have argued that if they had had at least one woman on the team, that maybe they would have remembered that they need to be designing for like a broader population, not just for men. Young men today in Silicon Valley have told me that their bosses tell them, design for you. Design what you'd want to use. That's the way to do it. I know that there have been a number of studies that showed voice recognition systems heard men better than women. A couple of years ago, Apple's Siri product wouldn't respond to questions about women's health clinics. These virtual assistants, the voices that pop up on our phones or laptops to help us out, like Siri, Alexa and Cortana, are becoming an ever bigger part of our lives. And I can't help noticing that the ones we're allowed to boss around, you know, Alexa, turn on the lights, or Siri, call my mum, tend to be female while the ones that advise us about serious subjects such as law or finance tend to be male. It's true that the companies that build virtual assistants are playing with gender. Now, voice is one way that we gender characters, virtual characters. Another way is the way they talk. I inadvertently press the Siri button quite frequently, 
And since I'm in a hurry and the presence of Siri is getting in the way of what I'm trying to do, I say, go away, Siri. Until fairly recently, when I say, go away, Siri, Siri would say, oh, can't we just be friends? And that's another way of gendering, is to rely on stereotypical, sexy, or cute talk. Hey Siri, why do you vibrate? Just me, doing a little jig inside here. Now, when companies have been asked why they use a female voice, they say it's because customers preferred a female voice for a virtual assistant and a male voice for something authoritative like a GPS. There's an interesting dilemma here. Do we design for the way people have been, or do we use our responsibility as the producers of technology to try and change the way people are? And so in all of the work that my students and I do, we build gender-ambiguous characters. Professor Justine Cassell of Carnegie Mellon University speaking on A Job for the Boys, presented by Marianne Seagat and produced by Sarah Bowen for BBC Radio 4. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. Silicon Valley and the big tech companies are having a major influence on life in the Bay Area, in and around San Francisco and California shaping transport options, changing neighbourhoods and fuelling a booming property market. The intersection uses two street corners in the region as a way of exploring these changes and of meeting some of the real people behind the headlines. Season one took a street corner in the Tenderloin district of San Francisco and met characters there experiencing homelessness, poverty and drug addiction. Season two journeys 60 kilometres southeast to Silicon Valley to spend a year and a half recording on another seemingly very different street corner. This one's near Google's HQ in Mountain View, California, an area that's been transformed from farmland to boomtown in the space of just a few decades. Homeless in Googleville finds people struggling to find an affordable place to live. This is uh, North Bayshore. Uh, we are parked in a parking lot on Google at an undisclosed location. Uh, you know, Google doesn't endorse people living in cars or living on campus. They would rather we go get an apartment somewhere. Uh, so, you know, you sort of are at the good graces of them not telling you to leave. Uh, the last Google employee who talked to a journalist about his living in a van on work was kicked out and forced to move and you know the same thing could happen to me well the good news is you haven't given me your name yet (laughs) welcome back to the intersection all around the bay area renters have been forced to make compromises paying a huge chunk of their take-home pay to live in a smaller unit or with roommates or in a less desired neighborhood or further and further from work But some Bay Area residents have dropped out of the housing market completely, sometimes by choice, more frequently as a last resort. They're not homeless per se. Like the folks you'll meet in this episode, they sleep in cars and vans and RVs. On this quiet tree-lined stretch of Space Parkway, there are about a dozen people living in vehicles of varying sizes and conditions. Some are parked on the street in front of office buildings occupied by Google, And then there are the luckier ones, Googlers who get to park their RVs in company parking lots. 
Mind if I grab a drink real of quick? Of course. Would you like one? I would love one. Uh, I don't know where you want to talk though. This is perfect actually because okay. it's great to be kind of close. confined. Yeah. I have a seat then. You can throw this stuff out of the way. Okay. So let's start like this. My name is Todd Berkebile. I am 42. I am a software engineer at Google. Uh, I've been working there for about five years and I live in an RV in North Bayshore. At some point I'll ask you for a tour, but we'll get there. You can kind of do that without even getting up. <laughs> okay. All the way to the back, you can see my very messy bedroom. It smells bad. Todd's Winnebago is 32 feet long. Inside, it's different tones of beige and gray and cream. And it's surprisingly spacious and homey. The bathroom. This is my den. There's a kitchen, living room, dining room. You know, I have everything that you have in your house, just a little bit smaller and closer to the office. Todd didn't plan to turn 40 in an RV in a parking lot at his job. It just kind of crept up on him. You see, back in 2009, he was living in a big house filled with lots of stuff in North Carolina. Then his startup went bust, and rather than jump back in, he bought this $60,000 deluxe RV and traveled the country. After a couple of years and 120,000 miles, he got a job offer at Google working in artificial intelligence, basically his dream job. And that's when he experienced that wonderful Bay Area rite of passage, housing sticker shock. I initially assumed I would buy a house locally, but in evaluating the housing market at that time, I assumed that the market would either level off or decline a bit. Plus, I was very comfortable living in my RV. I mean, I'd been doing it, you know, for almost two years at that point. And so I just decided that, you know, stay in the RV. Uh, when the housing market cools off, you know, I'll buy a house. But now all those overpriced houses from 2011 have literally doubled in price since then. <laughs> Actually, according to Zillow, the median house price in Mountain View has more than doubled since 2011 from $715,000 to a cool $1.6 million. You know, I've saved a lot of money. I could probably still afford to buy one. Uh, but now they look like an even worse investment. <laughs> you know, if I'd known uh, the future, I would have bought when I moved here and uh, gone down a more traditional path. And without his Google badge and all the perks that come with it, he may have opted for that path a long time ago. It does help to have nearby easy access to uh, flushing toilets and showers. Uh, so the advantage of being on campus here is we have 30-some gyms. Uh, we have laundry room facilities. Uh, all meals are provided during the week. Uh, there are a number of places on campus that I consider my secondary living rooms. There's a building that has a really nice TV room with like a, I don't know, 12-foot screen that you can just plug your uh, computer into and watch Hulu or Netflix or YouTube or whatever. Todd's RV is completely paid off, so his housing costs are almost non-existent. Because I have access to food at my employer, I don't run the generator. I don't even keep the refrigerator turned on. So about once a month, I empty the toilet tank, and that costs, I think it's $15. The way I see it is the amount I save every month on rent is basically a round-trip airplane ticket anywhere in the world, every month. 
I just got back from Thailand. Uh, I'm going to Cuba, to Brazil. Further away destinations uh, are easily affordable when you don't have a mortgage. <laughs> Is there anything you don't like about this? Dating can be difficult when you uh, choose to live abnormally. Uh, you definitely limit your options in terms of who would be open to that. Most of my friends say that I'm crazy to consider living in, in an RV as a, as a litmus test for finding a free spirit to, uh, to uh, be compatible with me. I think the, the perfect person for me wouldn't care, but it just is one more thing making it hard to find that perfect match. <laughs> you know, I don't consider myself uh, a crusader for urban homelessness. Uh, <laughs> I just see this as a creative solution to the ridiculous Bay housing situation. I have the luxury of choosing whether or not to live like this. You know, I, I worry about, you know, the people parked on the street getting harassed by Mountain View police. They don't have the ability to register with the Google card database. So, I, I, you know, I worry more about them. Many of the folks who can't get their license plates on Google's list park their vehicles on Space Parkway, 100 feet or so from Todd's RV. The scene on this street is a study in contrast. Groups of Googlers, many in their 20s, some making upwards of $200,000, walk past the same beat-up RVs and vans day after day. So what's their take on the situation? I haven't even noticed them, to be honest. Yeah, didn't notice them. Oh, I don't know anything about them. Yeah, I see them here. Yeah, they're here all the time, but... Uh, I think some people probably live in them. They don't necessarily look like Google employees to me. I don't have a problem with it. I mean, rent in Mountain View is expensive and people are just trying to get by, so. One of the vehicles that these folks pass is a white van circa 1985. It's easy to walk right past and not even notice it. What's up, boss? But on the day I walk by, the back door is slid wide open and there's a man in the back seat watching Netflix. I just bought the van recently about, uh, about a month ago. Right now, this is my home, period. My name is George Rainey. I am 32. I lived in the Bay Area all my life. I have a job. I'm a chef. I'm married. I got two kids. I got a five-year-old son. I got a three-month-old daughter. I've been with my wife eight years. I've been, uh, we've been married three. But for the time being, he's not living with them. I lived a certain lifestyle. You know, that, uh, that caused some, um, some issues in my family where it dictates that I be away from him for, for a amount of time. He's living in this van temporarily because he and his family cannot afford two rents. Man, right now where my wife is staying with our kids, it's 1,700 bucks for one bedroom. And the van was actually 1,200 bucks. George knew people lived in vehicles on Space Parkway because he often visits his grandmother, who lives in the Santiago Villa Mobile Home Park, just a few hundred feet away. I don't want to tell my, my grandma because it adds stress. She would let me come live in the house, but that's not, what I'm, that's not the, the path I'm on right now. What was night one like? You know, uh, night one was like a, you know, a cabin trip. Then day two was uh, tiring. Day three became like, okay, it's another day, you know, prepare yourself, you work tomorrow. You know, not to, not to get down on myself. You know, not to, not to say that, you know, um, I'm nobody or make this, beat, beat myself up over it. Um, it's been a very humbling experience. I got a lot of respect for people who uh, live in their vehicles and, and, and homeless. Um, it's not easy. 
What's not easy in the park? You know, just, you know, having to go use a bathroom, uh, eating out of cans, you know what I'm saying, like stuff like that. You know, I used to look down on them. But now I'm in a situation to where I'm living amongst them. You know, I look at it differently, man. You know, this is a way of life. Some of Homeless in Googleville from season two of The Intersection, produced by David Boyer for KALW. Thanks for listening to the podcast hour from RNZ. If you're finding it helpful to find new stuff to listen to, then please do consider rating or reviewing us with as many stars as you can manage wherever you get your podcasts from and tell your friends and family about us too. And if you're writing a review, then do let us know what you like about the show or how it could be improved. So if you'd like to hear longer clips, more interviews with the people making the shows that we feature, and if four shows is about the right number to highlight each week, that kind of stuff, it would be really helpful to know. Thanks a lot.